Welcome to ArcNext Sessions. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. On this week's show, we'll be talking about the 2016 selection for the MoMA PS1 Young Architects Program, Zaha's Reba Gold Medal Award, the Serpentine Gallery's selection of BIG for this year's pavilion, BIG's recently unveiled high-rise tower in New York, The Spiral, LA's controversial Neighborhood Integrity Initiative, and our recently published interview with the Turner Prize-winning outfit, Assemble. Our guest today is the author of the interview with Assemble, longtime Arconnect friend and contributor Will Galloway. Arconnectors may recognize Will as Jump in the discussion forum or by his editorial work on Arconnect, including his recent interviews with Samira Boone and the uh, interview with Assemble that we'll be talking about today. In addition, he's been sporadically updating his Arconnect blog over the last five years from his teaching position at Keio University in Tokyo, where he also runs his own practice front office. Will. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Did I pronounce KO University correctly? You pronounced it perfectly. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Excellent. So how is everything in Tokyo today? Uh, it's good. It's a bit chilly, but it's uh, pretty good for a Canadian, I would say. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, the we're, Canadians are vibing. We're almost, uh, it's, it's an almost 50% Canadian hosting right. setup today. <laughs> Actually, you know, the Midwesterners are almost Canadian. P- pretty much. Yeah, I think Ken is, Ken is like an honorary Canadian. For sure. Yeah, he's close. He's up there. Yeah, yeah that's right. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> he's Jersey. Well, let's, he's not, Jersey. let's not get too crazy there, all right? <laughs> Don't let me co- maybe call uh, uh, Donald Trump on you, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Whatever you do, Please don't. <laughs> All right. So should we get straight into the Assemble piece? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Will, this was a great interview that you did with Assemble. It was really fantastic timing. Um, I believe you were able to speak with them kind of before this deluge of press attention yeah. hit them um, after they won the Turner Prize. So you were meeting, you had sought out Assemble for a workshop you were running with KO University. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the workshop and how you got to meet them? Right. So I'm not sure how, how far to, to do go into the backstory, but um, basically my school uh, where I teach, it's a project-based education. So it means our, our students, they're actually not so good at, at doing uh, paper architecture and because they're required to build all the time. And they do a lot of work all over the world, in Africa, in, in Asia, uh, mostly. And so recently we've started this initiative that the government's supporting uh, and I'm helping to run, which is um, intending to teach students to become entrepreneurs, uh, which is a really cool thing. But, you know, architects, first of all, are really horrible at that, regardless of, of uh, what school they go to. And so we wanted to find people who are kind of doing architecture in a new way, in, in sort of an entrepreneurial way. So we did a tour and we went to meet a lot of people and... Um, one of the people we, we got to see was uh, Assemble when we, we went to London. We spoke to them, and, and they're, of course, amazingly awesome. And they just finished their own uh, that workshop, the one that's covered with these, these beautiful cement tiles. Uh, the Granby workshop? Uh, yeah, I think that's what it's called. It's just by the Olympic um, sort of area in, in, in London. And they just set it up, and they built it themselves, you know, from, from nothing. And meanwhile, at KO, we were talking about building our own buildings, like dormitories for the students to stay in. And we are getting a little bit of pushback saying, you know, students can't do this. You know, you can't make a two-story building and you don't, you know, you need to learn how to run equipment and all of these kinds of things. And then, you know, meanwhile, we see these guys and, you know, they're basically just right out of school and they taught themselves how to, you know, use heavy machinery and, and they put up this building that's beautiful. 
so we kind of use that as, as an example of what's possible for young people to do. And then after that, then I invited them to come to do a workshop, basically just to give the students uh, a chance to to see, you know, to sort of rethink, you know, what architecture can do and what process of design should be. And they came and, and uh, we had a really good time. And the students, well, I mean, you can see from the, from the photos in the interview, they, they um, I think it freed their mind quite a lot. And, and now they, instead of designing on paper first and then just going and, and building something, they, they really think, you know, you can just use whatever is at hand and just, you know, start building things just to feel what the space is like and work from there. So it, it kind of gave them a different way of thinking about, you know, how to work, which I, I think is awesome. Uh, Assemble really made a difference for, for those those students, at least. Well, I love the way that you started your uh, interview by saying you were from your school, you were going out in search of interesting people who think that building stuff at one-to-one scale sounds pretty normal. (laughs) I just, I really like that description of, you know, because I think you're right that there is still, even now, this disconnect in academia of students realizing that making things and actually putting the materials together, that's where architecture happens in a way. And so, yeah, I just thought that was great that you sort of said, let's not think of this as a non-traditional way of doing it, but just as what seems normal. Yeah. And there's, there's, you'd think that there would be less resistance to that, but, you know, it's really from top to bottom in schools all over. And e- even in our school, which is, you know, we tend to build stuff all the time. Yeah, there's still a lot of pushback thinking that you can't really do it. But then there's these examples that are, you know, so amazing. Well, what I really enjoyed about the interview was not just the photos, but I think the photos give a really fantastic kind of perspective into the style of the studio mm. of like students kind of running amok and grabbing stuff and throwing it together and making the Japanese onsen, the hot tub, <laughs> and just like the image of of James Binning, one of the members of Assemble who you interviewed, carrying what looks it's like a bust or a, a statue. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. A big, big statue. And that he, I presume, just like found <laughs> somewhere and, and kind of pilfered to go and create like this staging on this uh, part of the workshop that you were doing, which is like creating or adapting a formerly empty space into one that might that people might actually want to inhabit by this kind of simple interventions. Yeah. And seeing just that one shot of uh, of James walking with the statue, I just thought that was like a really great encapsulation of of kind of the ethos of the studio and and also what's happening in the workshop and, and how memorable and inspiring that can be for, for young students. Yeah, yeah, it was perfect. I mean, it was really great because the students were kind of in shock that, you know, you just started picking stuff up and saying, let's go. What, what, what are we doing here in the studio? It was, it was, it was perfect. Yeah, really, really a great experience. And, and for me too, actually, I found it really educational. I was just going to ask you, Will, if uh, Assemble made any reference to the Turner Prize nomination. They didn't. They might have been holding it, uh, you know, they might have known something about it coming up, but no, they didn't. They didn't say anything. So I feel actually quite lucky because I think it'd be impossible to contact them now. <laughs> and you would be right about that. <laughs> I tried yeah. to get in touch with them like as, as soon as you told me about this interview and, and right. that we were working together to put it on the site. I was, you know, hoping to get some follow up or like and I got some very courteous response emails within pretty timely, in a pretty timely fashion saying, <laughs> apologies, we have no way of responding to you at this time oh, because man. things are just so crazy. But it's it's really inspiring because also every time I get an email from them, it's from a different person. And I'm reminded that this truly really <laughs> is a, co- a collective of people that kind of like are really just trying to keep it a collective. Right. I think that's also one of the major points of the interview that you see in retrospect, knowing that they've won the Turner and, and that being kind of a 
no pun intended, turning point for their for their collective's trajectory, that you kind of hope that the the tone that is in the interview of this kind of like, yeah, we're trying stuff out. We're really like, mm. we don't think of ourselves as radical, but we're just trying to do this thing that we think is the right way to do it. You really hope that that optimism and that that kind of integrity continues on. Yeah, absolutely. In the light of continued attention. Yeah. I, I think the coolest thing about, you know, when you see all the, the, the photographs and so on of, of them winning the prize and so on, is that every time it's a photo with different people in it. So you, you never have like the, the star or just the one person or the two or three people that everything's sort of aggregating around, which I, I find really refreshing. So you never really know who is assembled. Yeah, exactly. Well, I will encourage anyone who wants to read that interview or listen to it to go to our site. Will you were you had the the right amount of foresight to record the entire interview in a in a recording that is actually a very good recording. Yeah, so good. you can hear an entire you can hear Will's conversation with James Binning and Palomar Strelitz. Am I saying that right? Uh, Paloma Strelitz, I think, but don't trust me. Paloma Strelitz. <laughs> so those but those two members of Assemble, um, you can listen to that interview embedded within the feature. It's also on our SoundCloud on and uh, the written feature appears on the site with a very helpful intro right. by Will. Yeah. So shall we move on to the next news item? Yes. You guys ready for some big news? Uh, <laughs> Are you ready for some big news? You know, I was going to I was going to preface this by commenting that there's been a lot of news about Bjarke Ingels group this week, but you know, then I realized it's actually been kind of a normal week for big <laughs> news because it's it's just I mean, it's becoming so common these days to be getting another big project announcement or some other big news piece from uh, Bjarke Ingels group. But anyways, the the two that we'll be discussing this week one of them is is a very highly commented article on Arconnect about a new project that was just announced the other day in Manhattan. The building's called The Spiral. It's an office tower, which will be the fourth tallest in the city if it gets built, and it will take up an entire block on the west side of Manhattan. The most distinctive element of this design is a spiraling green terrace offering a connected outdoor space accessible at all levels. As Bjark describes in a super dramatic promotional video produced by Squint Opera, the green spaces extend the high line into the skyline. Did you guys get a chance to look at this at this project and read some of the comments? Ken, what do you think? I really like the project. I and I like how how it's driving people batshit crazy. <laughs> it's you know it's kind of, you know, it's not that radical of a project to no, be to be inspiring not, this not. kind of response. But yeah. It, it's such a simple move actually. The reality is just so simple. And, you know, I think I finally come down on this uh, and I'm either mellowing in my older age when I should be getting um, crankier. But uh, what are they, what are people looking for in a, in a skyscraper? I mean, I don't understand the criticism because I don't, no one ever says what they're looking for. And then they're criticizing the guy who actually goes after work and gets the work. I mean, I don't understand. That's what makes everyone so angry. I don't know if he's going after it these days. <laughs> what the... That he gets work? Yeah, he's getting all the work, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think that's a valid thing to be concerned about. It all, when, whenever you have, especially in Manhattan, if you have this architect who might cover such prominent projects that a certain consistency of style might lead to a certain kind of drabness of style just by being too homogenous or too consistent, which of course is kind of antithetical to Bjarko's whole thing of having this kind of peppered skyline of really easily identifiable uh, icons. But I think that, yeah, it, the, what I see in these comments and this incredible vitriol is just an absolute confusion of talking about the architect's personality as leveraged by whoever's promoting it to get the projects built, confused with the actual structure. <laughs> no one is critiquing. Well, the critiques towards the actual structure are there, 
but they're also imbued by whatever people think, whoever people think Bjork is, which is impossible not to do nowadays, it seems like, with people kind of just obsessing entirely about the architectural celebrity status alongside whatever buildings are there. Should we take a look at what some people think of Bjork? Oh, yes. Ooh, yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's, let's look at some of the comments. Gia X, I don't know if that's how his name, his name is pronounced, or Gia X, has a couple opinions on Bjarka. One is, uh, Bjarka is an asshat. That's, that's one comment. Um, he doesn't go on to elaborate why he's an asshat, but, you know, he's... Uh, that's useful. Okay. Oh, another comment from him is, uh, Big sucks. My nine-year-old does more interesting shit in Minecraft. I've got a nine-year-old that likes Minecraft, and, you know, I in, in a way, I kind of agree with that. But, I mean, some of the stuff she does is amazing. I'm not saying anything you know, bad about Bjarka's work. And then uh, Nate Hornblower, another commenter, he has a few comments. Uh, big to architecture, drop dead. <laughs> architecture to big, ditto. Uh, and then also he goes on to, uh, to opine. Big is like an eco-Trump. Instead of gold-plated windows, it's greenwashed windows, meant more to communicate an idea of something. In Trump's case, it's a shallow wealth. In this case, it's some gimmick concept. Always a terrace, wagging the dog. The product looks the same. So that one, that one, uh, you know, is a little bit more in depth of a critique than Bjork is, is an asshat. But, big sucks. Um, you know, and, and there could be some truth to uh, the comparison between Donald Trump and, and uh, Bjarka. I mean, definitely there's, there's some huge differences, but um, huge there, <laughs> big, 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 big. there are, uh, there's a few, some other comments too. Um, there's a commenter uh, that goes by Limix. I believe, or lime mix. Whether the trees grow or not seems beside the point. The building is also sold as a spiral continuing the high line, but that's just a story. Look at the design. It's an ornamental private garden wrapping around a banal glass tower. And then he also says, Biggs projects, actually, I shouldn't say he, it could be a she. This person also says, Biggs projects all repeat similar traits, stacked banal glass volumes with roof gardens, cheaply made for developer satisfaction. If there's a critic that can explain the architectural value of this versus craft-oriented talent, see any architect on Obama's shortlist, in brackets, I'd love to read it. So a billion dollars is a cheaply made building, I guess. Mm, interesting. Yeah. You know, I just, I, it's an interesting discussion and too long to go into here, but I think that, uh, you know, I love architecture that is extremely craft-based and I'm thinking of Zumthor and Lake Flato and, you know, Todd Williams, Billy Chen, but I do think you get to a certain scale and you just have to accept that there's a craft difference, right? It doesn't mean that a skyscraper is necessarily terribly crafted as compared to Stephen Hall's St. Ignatius Chapel. It just is differently crafted for the scale of building that it is. Craft almost seems irrelevant to Big's proposals. I mean, his, his proposals are really about ideas. And narrative, how easy yeah. it is to just decide this is what the project is about. But I, you know, I, I actually really respect that. I mean, going back to what Ken was saying earlier, what do people look for in a skyscraper? I think that's a really hard question to answer. I don't think people know what they're looking for. But, but you know, with these proposals that Bjarka is providing, there is something to offer with a skyscraper that's unique. And I mean, in my opinion, this spiraling roof terrace actually does have value and a function. And I, and I imagine it could be a really nice space, you know, that the idea is that these, that this office building would consist of multi-unit offices that would allow for, you know, stair access to, to multiple floors rather than the traditional elevator access with large open spaces that, you know, continue to wrap around the, the building. I think simply put, you know, that, that seems like a great idea for a, for a, a tall office building. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very strange. The criticism being so shallow is, I guess, what everyone expects now from the internet. But it's a bit of a pity because there's probably, you know, valid things to say about the project as a project, but it's all just turned into uh, Bjarke bashing, which is not very useful. In the meantime, he's offering these things that uh, sort of question what a skyscraper is and how you inhabit it and all of you know these sort of things that you could actually talk about. And instead, we're just, you know, complaining about his T-shirt or it's just, <laughs> it's just so stupid. And, and it's such an opportunity to miss, you know, instead of having a conversation, we're just, you know, pissing on each other, which is just not helpful. Well, and the conversation seems ill, ill-decided on, ill-placed in terms of the criticism on Bjarka. Bjarka has a client who's come to him right. and says, design this thing for me. So, and Bjarka's response is to say, well, this building is sited near the north end of the high line. So we know that if we're going to build, if the pro forma is the skyscraper, what if we were to extend the high line into the building? Because those right. people on those upper levels won't get this sense of the high line. They won't have that that presence, that, that amazing strip of uh, park mm-hmm. is now extended. Now you could say, well, then we can, now we can, take the criticism to another level and say, well, now we're privatizing the public space for the, you know, for this. And then that's a, that's a valid decision or a valid criticism to start having. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that they criticize Bjarka for being this empty suit, this kind of Icarus type character, but then their, their criticism doesn't elevate their own point of view about the, about their you know, about a criticism that they should, you know, likely have. Mm. So they they stay just as shallow as they expect that his work will be. So it's like... <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> have any of you been to a Bjarke Engels design building? I went to the building in, in um, Copenhagen, the 8 building, and, and then, well, all those mm. buildings along that road there. Mm-hmm. That was a... JDS project though, right? Or was it was it uh, after they split up? It was built after they split up. I think. Not JDS. I'm sorry. Plot. It was plot. plot. Yeah, I, I think they were done together and then uh, completed after he finished. Because I think those are all on both of their websites, if, mm. if I remember correctly. But that the the eight building is amazing. It, uh, it's really an amazing place to be, and you know, craft and so on. You you can talk about it. It looks. Uh, you know, it's uh, made simply, which I appreciate, but it's not like a, you know some kind of Renaissance era stone, you know, handmade thing. But the the way the community works, and you know, being able to go up that ramp, and you know, people are riding their bikes up and down, and and all of the stuff that you see, you know, in his uh, his videos that he makes, it's all real. Yeah, I don't recall where I read it, but I recall reading an article where they somebody interviewed residents of, I believe, that project, and. Generally, the consensus was that everybody really loved, they loved the building as a place to live. Which is fair to say by a lot of people living in Copenhagen, I'd say. As, at least, the, at least the, <laughs> the general consensus of people who live in the social housing projects are much more positive than I'd say pretty much anywhere in the U.S. But I think I don't want to get into, I don't have any explicit criticism so much that I feel is helpful to share about this building. But I do think that this is based on an article that I kind of dug up after this Bjarka stuff kind of started seeming like it was impossible to avoid on the site. And it was like every week we had this new fancy rendering that people were getting annoyed about. And I mean, there was a time at which Bjarka was really celebrated. I think in a, he was profiled by The New Yorker in, like the, in 2013 kind of when the West 57th Street building started to go up. And he was just like, the reporter was shining light on him for being like this new social housing, exciting architect. Like that was the kind of most exciting and valuable part of his work. 
and what they thought was kind of justifying this wunderkind uh, name that he keeps getting. And so I think the perspective has shifted entirely out of that kind of value system and now just sees him as this deliverer of fancy schmancy PR renderings for big glass towers in New York City. And so historically, we're going to have to look back at there's a lot of other stuff that he's done, and we'll get to some more stuff that he's going to do quite shortly that has nothing to do with these kind of like accused to be soulless glass towers in Manhattan. So it's, it's, it's definitely a complex issue, but just right now we've been inundated with the latter stuff. Well, speaking of other projects that he is going to be working on, just earlier today, which is Wednesday, the 10th, the day before this, this podcast uh, episode is being aired, it was announced that the Serpentine selected Big to design the 2016 Pavilion, which is the 16th after they started uh, inviting architects to design these back in 2000. And this year, it was also announced that in addition to the Pavilion, there would be four summer houses that would be built by four other invited architects, which includes uh, Kunle Arayami, Barco Leibinger, and Yona Friedman, and Asif Khan. Did you guys get a chance to read that news? That was pretty crazy. Um, it was like, <laughs> we're going to have both this incredibly high-profile pavilion being the Serpentine. We're going to choose Big, which of course you know, what all refer to what we just were talking about. And also that someone point, I believe Nicholas points out in the article that the Serpentine is pavilion is whoever designs it has to be an architect who has not had a completed built work in the UK. And Bjarke Ingels Group is working on a building uh, Battersea State Power Station in the UK right now, and it, has, it just hasn't been completed yet, but it is scheduled to be completed by next year. And so this is just kind of just under the wire for big that this is the last year they would have been eligible for it at all. And hey, they, they get it. And also that it's the last year that the, the woman who started the Serpentine Pavilion is exiting the gallery. And so she's no longer presiding over it. And this has been kind of characterized as something that she has always been doing, which is very spearheading very ambitious projects at the Serpentine. And so to at the last time she's, she's in control of it to decide, no, we're not just going to have a pavilion. We're going to have <laughs> summer houses, which I can't even begin to imagine what that actually means, whether they're going to be fully functioning houses or such alongside the pavilion and whether or not they'll actually be related to one another. This just seemed like totally crazy and like a huge, a huge announcement to make. So really interested to see what the designs will actually be. I believe they have a few months or so to put something together. The part that stuck out most to me was this notion that um, this is the last year Big could be eligible for it. And I know a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing Alejandro Araveda winning the Pritzker and there's some sort of, you know, uh, conspiracy theories about he, he was on the jury last year and now he gets it. I didn't really buy any of that. It didn't really concern me. But I totally buy this, that, that Big <laughs> is being slipped in under the wire because she wants to have them do with the project and it's the last opportunity to do it. So, I mean, I'll be eager to see the proposals. I'm sure they will all be very cool. But yeah, I'm totally ready to buy into that theory that, that we had to get him now because otherwise he, he wouldn't have been eligible anymore. And these pavilions are auctioned off, right, to private buyers after the... They can be. I mean, they have been in the past. Yeah. And that, again, the notion that you want to add him to your collection, right? Mm. Like we have to have big as part of our curated into our collection. So he's part of the legacy, I think is really interesting and funny. Yeah. So there's definitely a financial motive behind uh, who oh, they yeah. select. Oh, yeah. Is that a hard rule? Yeah. Will, what did you think? Well, I was, I was wondering if that was a hard rule about not having built because Selgascano had done that interior like um, sort of an innovation hub or something like that in or close to Liverpool station I think when they at the same time perhaps when they did their pavilion it is a rule it is a rule oh. that that the uh, architect does not have anything built but I think that with uh, Selgascano 
I think they were also in the same position that that project had not been complete yet. It just wasn't finished. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I love uh, the serpentine pavilions. I, I, I've been lucky to go to the last few. The the one by So Fujimoto blew my mind. Hmm. It was just the most amazing thing I've seen uh, in architecture for a long time. And the one last year by Sal Gascano was, was, of course, interestingly put together and, and kind of, I can see both sides, how people hate it and people love it. How did that pavilion look in, in person? I heard that it came across a little cheaply. Totally. Uh, but put I, together. I, I, but, <laughs> but that was the, that was the idea. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't bug me. It was super fun. Uh, I, I don't think they were, you know, they weren't trying to make a perfect sort of sculptural thing. So uh, the experience was really nice. You walked through it and, and, uh, you know, people would come in from all sides and it was very, uh, experientially very rich. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, and, and just, you know, this just me personally, but I, I love Hyde Park and, and that, that whole area. It's, it's my favorite place in London. And, and so the idea of spreading out past the Serpentine is, is uh, you know, not just having that little pavilion in front of the gallery is fantastic. I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is an exciting addition this year these summer homes, but uh, they're, they're permanent, right? Are they intended to be permanent? I had the impression they'd take them down, wouldn't they? Oh, okay. Maybe they'll also be selling them in the gift shop. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll become prefab. Take a home with you. You can fit it in your backpack. You can take it home. Well, it'll be really interesting to see what uh, Big comes up with. Speaking of Big, if you haven't had a chance, go back to episode 14 of Our Connect Sessions, where we interview Bjarka and he talks about his work. And uh, so if you're you're into his stuff, which most people are, either in a good way or a bad way, (laughs) uh, go back and, and take a listen to that if you haven't. Moving on. All right. Well, so one of the other news pieces that we covered last week has to do with a kind of more specific to L.A. news piece. There's a particular ballot initiative that is kind of a little bit bonkers. So if you're into the planning wonkery, then get excited. This is a ballot that could, or a planning initiative that might go on the ballot for November. It's currently called the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative, which is also pretty bonkers of a title and probably won't show up like that. But it basically is a way for people to stop so-called mega developments in Hollywood, which has been kind of a huge contentious issue for development in L.A. There's kind of these two prongs of saying as L.A. densifies, there's this vulnerability to take advantage of lands for just creating luxury property because there is more of a demand for that, while at the same time at the expense of low income or affordable housing. But at the same time, L.A.'s planning code is like, I believe, hasn't been comprehensively updated since like the late 40s. And if you haven't, even if you've never been to LA, you probably know that a lot has changed since like 1946. And so what is pretty standard in LA is if you want to develop on a plot that has a certain zoning based on the general plan of of the city, that it's pretty easy to get that changed for the plot that you're interested in. So you can do like site-specific zoning and say, you know what, this is by a train station. I actually want this to be residential instead of retail because, you know, more people are traveling by metro. So it'd be cool to have people living there. And so this kind of spot zoning allows this to happen. But the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative thinks that that might be an opportunity for these so-called mega developments to just hop in and start doing what they're doing. And so they want to basically shut down that possibility and in doing so have kind of angered a lot of people who are also trying to advocate for more affordable housing in the city as it becomes increasingly difficult to uh, live here and have a pretty crazy um, rental situation. So totally understand if this is not a topic that the non-LA people have had a chance to kind of dig into, but um, it's definitely an issue that is not at all exclusive to LA as, as a kind of adapting planning policies to suit housing crises, basically. Wherever your perspective on the housing crisis is, that we it's a crisis because we are developing too fast or it's a crisis because we don't have enough buildings. Kind of depends on your stake in the whole thing. 
There's also some other like more wonky things about not allowing developers to slash parking requirements, which of course is also crazy. It's like current status is something like, you know, two cars per person. It's absolutely insane. But anyway, if anyone has any thoughts about this very LA and very also very general planning initiative, let's hear what you got. I just want to clarify that they're calling it, when you get an exception to the rules, a spot, what is it called? A spot, spot zoning or spot decision? I believe it's called spot zoning. That's how it's referred to in the- Spot zoning for non-conforming. Yeah, spot zoning referred to in the California Planning and Development Report article. I mean, that's essentially getting a variance, right? That's what I would, that's the term I would use for when I want to do something that the zoning or, or building or historic preservation or whatever code doesn't allow, we go for a variance, which means you're asking specifically in this case to change the rules for this project. And I mean, this is common. This happens a lot. The place where in LA, it certainly seems lately like it's been an issue is that it's, uh, of course, big developers doing these big projects that are no doubt politically connected. So that, you know, whether whether you can get the variance for something enormous because you know enough people in the high, you know, the muckety-mucks, that's certainly a, a concern for a democracy, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, why it's such a tricky issue, because it's it's something that has become the status quo in L.A. that the general plan is just nearly impossible to use or to refer to. So that effectively, yes, these variants are happening on the day to day. But the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative wants to just halt that entirely and wants people to only have to refer to the general plan as it's stated to kind of make it as difficult as possible for new pro. It seems as if that's the impl- implication that it's difficult as possible for new developments to come in. And it's just it's it's interesting to see this in the context of other highly publicized housing crises in, in other cities, such as London, where there's all these different attempts to kind of freeze development or spur development. And they all have their implications that they may actually help or hurt various parties. But it's just something that is becoming more and more of an issue or at least a vocalized issue if, if it had already been one before as we try to figure out where to put people in cities. Like this is just an ongoing issue that is never going to really be solved as cities grow and develop. Will, could you make a comparison to Tokyo and how things develop there? I was just thinking that Tokyo is really weird because, well, I mean, Japan is weird because urban planning here is, uh, it's actually the regulations covering uh, planning are in the, the building code. And there's basically 12 zones across the entire country. And it doesn't matter if you're in the suburbs or, the, or in the middle of Shibuya, it's the same uh, system. So there, there's local planning and so on, but it's nothing like America or Europe where it gets really, really complicated. Here it's uh, it's pretty black and white, and apart from some you know very extreme things like putting a factory or something in the middle of the city, it's hard. But after that, you can do whatever you want as long as you meet uh, you know sort of shadow requirements and access to daylight and things like that. Which means our, our planning is is a mess. But it means that if um, if you want to have a hospital or if you want housing or whatever you want, it's all possible. And uh, as long as there's money there, it happens. The other thing that's really different in Japan is we don't um, we don't use zoning to keep people out. You know, in America, the, I mean, the beginning of zoning is basically you know the first zoning laws in in uh, California, I think, were to keep Chinese people you know away from certain parts of uh, the city. And we, we don't have anything like that here. So, you know, my office is in a fairly high, high-end area of, the, of Tokyo. And, you know, we're right close to the legislature building for the, you know, the country. But this building that was just built in front of us is basically, uh, you know, I hesitate to call it a flop house, but it's, it's like a monthly rental place where people come in as itinerant workers or whatever. And that's totally fine. No one cares if you're rich or poor or whatever. Property value comes from you know, it's based on how close you are to a train station, not by who lives beside you. 
so it means we have we don't have to deal with all this gentrification and other stuff, as, or at least not to the extent that everyone else does in, in the rest of the world. It's a very strange place. It seems like the this kind of zoning thing is a little different than most. Wouldn't you agree, Donna? I mean, a councilman is hardly ever involved in a zoning process. It seems like it's done on a planning or a zoning board. And then it goes, ultimately, it goes to the city council for, for voting up and down. But this process, it seems to be saying that we're putting this ballot initiative out there because we want to slow the process down. We want to force our leaders to actually do what they were supposed to do and actually update the zoning and planning so that actually re- reflects current conditions and not 1940s conditions. So I think this is probably a pretty good thing, but they, too much control back to the people would be, you know, obviously could be problematic because then it slows down a process. So as long as it keeps moving forward and, and but forces the hand of city officials to actually start defining what is real and what is, you know, outmoded or outdated, I think it's a good thing. Ken, I just want to interject just before you uh, we get to you, Donna, I just want to mention that, that LA's general planning code is being updated, but I think Josh Stevens, who wrote the article that Orhan posted about um, referencing this ballot initiative, I think he puts it as everyone in Los Angeles will be dead by the time everyone currently <laughs> alive in Los Angeles will be dead by the time that the planning uh, code is actually fully revised. And I really don't think that's an exaggeration. I think this is something it's an ongoing project that has been under so much constant revision and and problematics for so long. And it's just like it's it seems as if it's almost an impossibility. But of, of course, it's not. But just to say this is like it's it's ongoing. I was just going to mention that when, Emilio, when you and I interviewed Elizabeth Timmy, uh, like a year ago, we were talking for the podcast, we were talking about updating the zoning code. Mm-hmm. And she was she spoke a little bit about how what a complex morass it is <laughs> of, of, you know, various issues and problems and things that have changed in, incrementally. And I don't know, I mean, Indianapolis, we just did went through the Indy Rezone project, which was basically updating our entire zoning code. And we're not L.A., obviously, we're not one of the top three cities in the you know biggest cities in the in the country. But sometimes you do just have to say, okay, we're going to we're going to make these changes and we're going to implement it. And I guess in that sense, I don't think saying, okay, can we have a two year moratorium on big, you know, projects above a certain size until we can get it all sorted out? That doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Of course, if you're a real estate developer, it's a huge deal. So perspective. (laughs) All right. Shall we move on to uh, the next in in Starkitect news? (laughs) We talk about these people all the time. (laughs) We talk about Bjarki every week. We talk about Zaha every week. But I was going to introduce the news that uh, architect Dame Zaha Hadid was awarded the 2016 Royal Institute of British Architects Gold Medal last week. She was It was announced a couple of weeks ago. It was awarded on Wednesday. And I want to point out in doing a little background research for introducing this topic that the REBA claims that the gold medal is the most prestigious prize in architecture. And I think the Pritzker makes the same claim, mm-hmm. right? So, so Zaha won it. And Zaha is obviously a, a lightning rod. Every time she shows up on Arconnect, people get both very offensive and very defensive about her. They comment on everything from her clients' politics to her lipstick choices. It's, it's a little frustrating. So I want to talk about this. As we talk about Zaha, I just want to mention and bring to the forefront the fact that her architecture is very good and very significant within the discipline. I think she gets a lot of flack for just doing this like very iconic form building. And when she received the, when she, when it was announced that she won the award, this is, this is a quote from what she said, her press release. This recognition is an honor for me and my practice, but equally for all our clients. It is always exciting to collaborate with those who have great civic pride and vision. 
Part of architecture's job is to make people feel good in the spaces where we live, go to school, and work. So we must be committed to raising standards. Architects now have the skills and tools to address these critical issues. And I think Zaha has been in the news quite a bit lately, actually, for saying these things that seem sort of contrary to so much criticism of her work. She really speaks about the work being a part of a complex physical social network and that she is trying to improve the the general community for everyone. And I think that tends to get overlooked in a lot of, of, of sort of, you know, Zaha sucks commentary on the, on, the, on the website. I think if you look at really good critics, they are, will, to a one, say her work is incredibly influential. It has been for 34 years now since she won the peak competition, and she's absolutely deserving of this prize. The only other thing I want to quote from then at the actual ceremony, which, of course, at the black tie ceremony where she accepted the award, there was comments in the press about her outfit and, you know, things about how she looks all the time. But this is, again, something that she said in those in that award ceremony was this is quoting from her. Architecture is not a medium of personal expression for me. To interpret it as striving for individual expression is to misunderstand it. This misunderstanding is often linked to the dismissal of my work as self-indulgent or willful. However, for me, there was never any doubt that architecture must contribute to society's progress and ultimately to our individual and collective well-being. And I have always believed in progress and in creativity's role in progress. So I just thought we, you know, I wanted to talk more about her architecture and the fact that she is an enormous and important voice in the in the discipline and in the built world and not just talk about the fact that she has, she's the first woman to win the gold medal on her own or what color lipstick she was wearing at the ceremony so what do you guys think does uh, will will do you like zaha do you like her work yeah absolutely i'm a huge huge fan I, i'm always a guy who's writing the comments saying you should stop saying this this ridiculous nonsense <laughs> which, which yeah okay whatever no it's great i, I read I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because i read that same article and that same quote that you just you just gave and i thought this is completely different from what patrick schumacher says all the time exactly and, and it's so exactly. thoughtful and is like did she decide to do this to sort of you know, sort of almost in reaction to his stuff or, you know, she just wanted to set the story straight because it's getting a bit skewed or is this just what she's always been saying? I never noticed. Yeah. In a couple of other interviews recently, she has said things that made me think, wow, that seems really opposite to what Patrick says. <laughs> so I, I think on one of the news posts about it a, month, a couple months ago, I posted, well, isn't it nice that they can apparently have these disparate views, but still be able to work together to produce projects, which as architects, that's what we have to do all the time, right? Yeah. Is work with people we don't always agree with. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, Donna, I also noticed that, of course, in all of these coverage, in all this, in any Zaha coverage, you get an, an inevitable mention of, of lipstick color or such. And I do say her outfits do merit attention, like for sure. But there is this kind of like frustration in any type of either just attempts to retain a kind of feminist voice in any type of architectural journalism while also just avoiding it as an issue. Um, and I feel like Zaha, unfortunately, just kind of becomes the lightning rod for a lot of those things. So while it's good that oftentimes the like her specialty, because she is a woman, because she's the first one to win this prize on her own, et cetera, et cetera, those accolades are important to point out, but they often then open up the conversation for that kind of like more derisive stuff that is like, well, it's because she's a woman or because she's not a man or that kind of stuff. And so it's it's always interesting to kind of check back in with, with Zaha architectural talk, especially after things like talking about critiquing someone like Bjarka or or really anyone else. She still is kind of like a singular entity that we have to talk about. So both for her architecture and for her personality and however it is skewed in the media. So I'm always happy to talk about Zaha. So 
A couple of things I, I really like to hit on here is that I think most people tend to attack her because she won't apologize. And I think most people want her to apologize because she's a woman. I think that it's easy to, in you know, there's the that meme that's out there right now, stop saying I'm sorry. And I think the fact that she won't say she's sorry for anything is is quite refreshing. And it's, a, it's effective at emasculating most of the male architects out there that want to criticize her. Second, the other thing to say about her work is that her work was standing on its own before Patrick was even a gleam in anyone's eye, let alone his own. <laughs> so the very fact that she create this work, her work can stand alone without his pontificating and his bloviating. <laughs> and the very fact that he does that, I think he's striving. In fact, I don't, to be perfectly honest with you, I've never seen a Patrick Schumacher design ever because everything I've ever seen come out of Z- ZHA has always retained its authentic connection to Zaha or uh, Zaha's earliest work. So whatever language he he kind of lays over the top of that is almost secondary. And it actually, it's, it's pretty obvious that he has n- virtually no clue about what he's talking about <laughs> when it comes to her work. Because, and again, it's just my opinion because I look at I look at the evolution of her work from the from her earliest designs and her earliest paintings to the stuff that's that she's doing now and it seems obviously connected that it's coming from her hand so I don't know what he adds what additive you know a constructive architectural thing is actually his other than his language that he seems to think that she needs to be legitimized in some kind of like you know, architectural language that it just, it doesn't, it's not necessary. And in fact, you know, I think it just makes him look even dumber. <laughs> but it is, it is Zaha that, that gets the attention and, and the awards. It is. That's yeah. just, <laughs> so we, yeah, when we're talking about Zaha, I think our, our the, the, the hate and the vitriol that comes at her is directly related to the stuff that you see here, Patrick talking about. So when she starts speaking her, when she starts talking her own, when she's talking on her own and there's not this mouth, this German mouthpiece next to her kind of trying to elevate something that was already way above his skill level. It's so obvious to me that where is the true lack here? It's, it's, it's clearly not in her hands. It's, it's in his. And that's why he sticks with language and, and creating fake states. I mean, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I just want to go back again one more time to the buildings, because the one Zaha building I have experienced is the um, Contemporary Art Center in in uh, Cincinnati. And it is an amazing building. And the thing I love the most about it is how urban it is and how well it connects to the street. And this is uh, it, when Architect Magazine, the writer Joseph Giovannini wrote about her work and about accepting the gold medal, that she has consistently developed public space inside and outside her buildings. She architecturalizes the space around them as structured landscapes of terraces, promenades, and programming. And when I have taught students, especially first-year architecture students, I am constantly telling them, think about the ground plane. Think about the approach. Think about the that ground plane context within which your building sits. And it's so hard to get students to understand that. And I think if students especially look at a building and just go, yeah, it's a, you know, it's an object sitting on nothing and they don't see what in Zaha's buildings the thing is sitting on and how it engages with that context. They're missing out. They're just missing out. The critics are missing out. So, But the way that Zaha's office usually presents their projects is like an object taken from aerial perspective. I mean, there, there usually isn't that much context in the way that, it, that it's presented to the... In the way that it's presented. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's presented as this gorgeous thing that kind of looks like a swan or whatever, or yeah, Vag- but, vagina. 
<laughs> Vagina. Sorry. Yes. I think the thing is because she gets all of that other stuff right, then she just presents what's interesting to her, which is maybe the form, but doesn't mean she's ignoring it all. And and uh, I think Donna's and and uh, what Ken said, it's, it's right on the money. Then she's actually supremely skilled at, at you know, recognizing what's around the building. She just doesn't talk about how good she is at dealing with it. Yeah, I think again we're kind of getting caught up in the chosen perspectivizing of whatever media attention these projects get. <laughs> like it's it's very easy to forget about the ground plane and such when you do have these images that focus entirely on the swoopiness or the, mm-hmm. the you know, the, the right. aerial shot. Yeah, I'd say I, I haven't seen any of her buildings, I think, in person, but uh, we almost had one here in, in Tokyo, a couple of blocks from my office, actually. It's just right down the road, the, the Olympic Stadium site. And, uh, you know, her first proposal connected all of these bits of the city you know, in a, in a really, you know, she's she's really careful about it, and you know, the, all the problems that that came out of the requirements for the stadium and and so on, I, I wouldn't comment on. But just in terms of landscape and urban planning, she obviously had some insight, and, and that's all gone, by the way. It's none of it's going to happen in reality uh, in the updated version either, which, which I think is the the biggest you know sort of thing that's a, in terms of disaster coming out of this. That's the the worst thing that's happened now. What kind of, what do you hear about Zaha in Japan? Well, because <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like, it seems like she's not the most uh, well-liked no. architect right now in, in no. that country. It's a pity because I, I know, uh, I know so many people who are working on the stadium and uh, for two years and all that's just sort of gone. It's, I think everybody knows her. And, and even my, my, uh, my mother-in-law was talking about how she messed up the stadium because that's what she saw in the news on the national news or so, yeah, this, this British architect didn't know how to do it. And so they had to bring in a Japanese person. And I was going, no, that's not quite the story. But, you know, to explain it to, to my mother-in-law who, you know, really isn't, she's not an architect and, but that's her impression, which, which I find really sad because it's, it's more nuanced than that. Well, I just want to say congratulations to Dame Zaha Hadid <laughs> and, yeah, uh, nice. uh, yeah. I think she's I think she's pretty fantastic in every way. So do we have other news that we want to talk about? Yes. Our one last news item to discuss today um, is something that didn't technically fall within last week, but it's something we didn't have time to address in last week's VR show. This is the uh, the winner of the Young Architects program uh, hosted by MoMA and MoMA PS1. The winners this year are Escobedo Solis Studio. They are Mexico City based. And their design weaving the courtyard for the uh, PS1 pavilion is a combination of a woven thread canopy with waiting pools established in the actual courtyard. From the images that we have so far, which are, the design is pretty consistent in the in the representation of this kind of late summer, kind of hazy, humid, lazy vibe. But it's a little bit hard to tell exactly how invasive or how encompassing the design will be. It looks pretty minimal at this point. It looks just like a woven canopy with these taut cables above. Part of the MoMA PS1, the Young Architects Program, stipulations are that there's an attention to sustainability and that the architects, of course, be young and somewhat unrecognized. And so in this case, the materials that will be used in the pavilion will be constructed in such a way that they won't really be amended or changed so much and that it can be easily used again after the pavilion is deconstructed at the end of the summer. So just quickly, why don't we just go over with people's thoughts about what the pavilion might be like and, and how it stacks up to other Young Architects programs designs. We've had last year's winner, Andres Hake, uh, on the show as well. And his, um, I, I think a lot of people have been kind of comparing this design 
back to his, which was kind of much more monumental and ambitious and a little bit crazy in this huge recycling water system, whereas this is much more subtle and static. I think this installation can either be really horrible or really great. I mean, it's really going to come down to how well it's executed. Yeah, there's really nothing to see engaging with in at least the in at least the designs. I mean, there's there's the canopy, but the waiting pools aren't really fully explained. And so, yeah, it's a great idea. Have some waiting pools. It's hot. But what is that going to mean? Like people's dirty touristy feet, like in uh, two inches of like tepid water? Like that doesn't sound extremely appetizing <laughs> or refreshing. Well, Will, you had your students build a uh, a portable onsen, right? Yeah. For maybe maybe they could come out and move one of those into the into the courtyard. Because yeah. my biggest criticism is it just it seems like there's nothing happening in there, and I think it might be really nice to just have this little gentle sort of canopy hanging over you, but it also just seems very empty in the middle. It doesn't seem to actually address much about what it feels like to be in New York in the summer and how horrible it is <laughs> and how hot and humid it is <laughs> and that and how if you are attending some like hip art party at, at Moment PS1 you probably would want a little bit more respite and engagement than than what is it um, shown in the renderings but this space is is used for a lot of really popular events right so one of the major components of the young architects program is also for the warm up concert series that Moment PS1 puts on so it doesn't make sense that there isn't you know giant impediments all throughout the thing because you want a space for people for huge crowds together. But it just, it, I think on a few, this was echoed in a few of the comments. Um, Lee Robert commented on the piece saying, every year I'm underwhelmed by the winners. The renderings are evocative, but the end result is typically a hot, empty courtyard in the middle of August. Uh, and I kind of feel like that, of course, like you can't stop the heat entirely, but that's kind of, that, that seems to me like an apt criticism for this time around. But maybe there just isn't a lot of fleshed out yet, and we'll get to see more detailed uh, illustrations later. Does it count as a canopy if it's just a bunch of lines overhead? I, I, I wasn't sure yeah. if I was reading it right or not. <laughs> I'm wondering that too, because based on the renderings, it doesn't look like it would be providing any kind of protection from the sun. It's just kind of... Only a, at a very specific angle. Right. <laughs> if the sun is on the horizon, maybe. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you just lay under it, you get a striped tan marks on your body. Cool. Mm. Right. That'll be the new thing. I, I, I thought I would add that for people who don't like Bjark Engels, he, he actually lost the competition to do this one uh, a few years ago. <laughs> he, he was he was one of the shortlists a few years ago, and he didn't win. Yeah. So only a few years ago. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, he's. I when think he was that's... a teenager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it must have been the last <laughs> five years, anyways. But yeah, so if you're if you want to hate Bjark and you want to see him lose, here's here's the <laughs> chance to look back and, and you know mock him. <laughs> That's why the reign of terror is happening in New York City right yeah, now. Probably. He's got like about a yeah. half a dozen projects going yeah, on. He, there. He, he, I think he got the long end of the stick. <laughs> All in because that one. of PS One. <laughs> That's probably yeah. That was the stick, right? He, he got. God damn it! I'm going to go to New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, should we wrap up today's episode? I think so. It's been a full hour. Thanks to Will Galloway for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks. And. Uh, yeah, that's it for this week. If, uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And uh, this Monday, for the one-to-one -one episode, who are we uh, featuring? We are going to be speaking with Garrett Jacobs, who is the newly established director of the Chapter Network, the offshoot from Architecture for Humanity. 
so he's going to give us a little bit of a peek into what's happening there and how the organization is getting built back up. Well, that'll be a good one. Make sure to check that out. You have to subscribe to the other podcasts. It's not going to be coming up on this podcast. So that podcast is our Connect Sessions one-to-one coming out on Monday and every Monday. Thank you, everybody. Thanks to my co-hosts. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Have a good week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.